0: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fensky. Filmmaker Lynn Novick may be best known for her work with Ken Burns. She was his co-director on the Vietnam War miniseries that premiered on PBS in 2017 and also on Prohibition, which first aired in 2011 and many others as well. But for Novick's new project, She's the Sole Director, Burns is there as the executive producer. College Behind Bars has its premiere on the Nine Network on November 25th. It follows men and women pursuing college degrees, even while doing time in prison for serious crimes. They're all part of the Barred Prison Initiative, which brings instructors from the respected liberal arts college to six penal institutions in New York State. The program is considered the most rigorous within the prison system. Let's listen to the beginning of the trailer.
1: I spent more time in prison than I did in the free world. I came to jail when I was 17 years old. So it's like, freedom, it's hard to visualize for me. I've been incarcerated for 13 years. And from my experience, I can tell you, prison is here to punish us. It's here to warehouse us but it's not about um, rehabilitating. It's not about creating um, productive beings. It just isn't. This is my cell. This is where I uh, rest my head. You have my sink, uh, my window. You see, I don't have much of a view of much out uh, there.
0: That's from College Behind Bars, which airs on the Nine Network later this month. And Lynn Novick is here to talk to us all about it. Lynn, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm sorry. I have a little bit of a scratchy throat today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we're also joined today by Soli Israel. He's a graduate of the program. Soli, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. For those of you listening, what kind of impact do you think prison education programs can have on the American criminal justice system? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Lynn Novick, how did you first get interested in the Bard Prison Initiative?
2: Um, on a very sort of um, lucky moment, um, producer Sarah Botstein and I were working on our film on the Vietnam War, and we were invited to do a guest lecture inside this pro, in a prison in this program um, on our Prohibition film. So we brought our clip reel like we always do to every class we ever go to. We showed clips and we had a conversation with the students. And it was one of the most interesting and sort of engaging and serious conversations we had about that film, about our filmmaking process, about the underlying issues raised in the Prohibition film about justice in America. And, you know, it totally blew our minds, to be honest. I'd mm-hmm. never been inside a maximum security prison before. Neither had Sarah. And when we walked out of the class, we looked at each other and we, really, we said, that was extraordinary. We had no idea that that was what this would be. This would be an amazing film. Now, we were working on Vietnam with Ken Burns. We weren't really thinking we would make this film. So what I actually did is I got in touch with Max Kenner, who runs the program, the Bard Prison Initiative. And I said I wanted to help. What could I do? And he offered me the incredible opportunity to teach in the class, teach in the program myself. Oh, wow. So I taught for eight weeks a seminar on history and documentary. Sarah taught some of the classes with me. I brought in other filmmakers to talk about our process and about sort of we were really investigating deep questions. What is history? What is truth? And so over the course of working on that, cl- that class, getting to know the students, um, I decided and Sarah and I agreed to partner on making this film.
0: So your initial interaction with these students, you came away so impressed. Um, over an eight-week program, it's a lot harder to hide if it's all just smoke and mirrors. Uh, what was your
2: impression after you got to know these uh, men more? Yeah, my primary impression was really being um, impressed and intellectually intimidated. Mm. Um, Every time I went into class, prepared, I thought, and I taught, um, you know, we had a very challenging syllabus put together with really hard readings about all kinds of aspects of our work that I hadn't really ever considered an academic perspective. Um, The students had done all the reading. Mm -hmm. They had really thought deeply about what we were discussing ahead of time and challenged us in ways that I'd never been challenged before intellectually and academically. So it was exciting. It was um, invigorating. And it was really thrilling.
0: Uh, Was it a hard sell for prison officials to get the access that you needed?
2: I don't know if it was really a hard sell. I'll just say that for Sarah and me, it took about a year.
0: Okay. So it
2: took a lot of time. So Yes. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what was happening all that time. They were considering it. Actually, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, had to approve this because we had such unusual access. We weren't asking to bring a camera in for a day or a week. We wanted to show the transformative power of education over time. So we knew that we would want to film for three or four years. Mm -hmm. And that meant we would be coming in and out with and without cameras for quite a long period of time, getting to know people and seeing what this experience of getting a college education was like. And the Department of Corrections agreed because they understand more than most people probably how valuable education is as a resource inside a prison. And they really admire and are grateful for this program, which is privately funded for the most part. And they wanted the world to see what is possible when people are given this opportunity.
0: Now, Salih, you're a graduate of this program. How did that come about that you were able to enroll in the Bard Prison Initiative? So at the time when I got into
3: enrolled into Bard, BPI was in two facilities. Uh, one is a medium security facility and the other is a maximum security facility. I got transferred from one maximum security prison to another. And the one I happened to get transferred to was Eastern Correctional Facility, which had BPI. And the moment you get to to a facility where BPI is, you know BPI is there. Hmm. It is part of the, the the daily conversation. You know who's in, who's not in. You see these guys that are deeply engaged in work in places that you don't only think of places where people are deeply engaged in, you know, serious uh, studies. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get there and I applied immediately and I was fortunate enough to be admitted.
0: Now I understand it's a really hard selection process for this <clears> thing. <throat> what did you have to do?
3: Okay, it's, you know, it's funny you say, the idea of how rare it is, one, is the first hurdle, yeah. that we know that unfortunately because of resources and just the way the prison is designed and how many people is in the prison and the way space is used, that it is impossible to have but so many students enrolled at one time. Mm-hmm. So when I when I when I applied, I think 130 something people applied at that time, and you know, so that first anxiety—that's so the first part. Before we see, we say what I have to do—is the process of doing it that is is very intimidating in a lot of ways. Uh, and then the actual process for admissions is is not as intimidating as it is normally for BP. I mean for Bard in general. Mm-hmm. Bard doesn't focus so much on SAT scores or ACT scores. Bard is focused on. I'm talking about Bard College. So I'm saying just the BPI program as as a practice. Bard Bard College, they're interested in in, in, in identifying you know how students think, their potential to you know to to learn and think critically. It wasn't a it was it was an essay process. It wasn't this thing where you have to prove to me what you know. Mm-hmm. It was more like let me let me see that you have. Passion and potential, so that you are capable of discovering what you don't know, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different than how I experienced any type of school up until that point. For me, up until that point, school was all about proving through tests. You know, do I know? Do I know? Do I know? And and never approaching like, do you want to go on a journey where you can, you know, get some things that you don't know? And I, I wrote this essay, and they they tell you we don't care about grammar. It's not about that, right? You come here to see. We're going to take care of that once 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 we admit you. Mm-hmm. And then you have a conversation with, at that time for me, was the director and the director of academic policy. And they asked you questions about the things that you wrote, right, it, they had read them, which is also different. Like they had actually read the essay that I wrote. Yeah, You know, you read read a hundred essays and they, and they understood what my essay was. And they asked like, when you said this, what did you think? Or what made you re- say this? And just have an opportunity. So th- the first thing was what I thought mattered. Mm-hmm. So the actual process is empowering yeah. in a lot of ways, right? And you get the sense that when I get in here, they're gonna be concerned about what I think and how I think, and they're gonna be invested in developing, cultivating how I think.
0: And they have all the students here, not only do they end up choosing a major, but they have to write this senior thesis, it's called the Senior Project, which is, it's practically a master's thesis. What did you end up uh, focusing your studies on? Oh, that's
3: that's a good question. So I'll, I'll say this, you know, the, the way BPI works, the BPI works is really like, you could think of it as a lower college and upper college, that when we're initially admitted, we're admitted into an AA program. Mm-hmm. And then That's like an associate's degree. Exactly, associate's degree in liberal arts, and then once you're you're done with that, you can kind of like what we call moderate. You can then make it, you know, apply to go into the upper college, which is to go into the BA program. And this film shows both. This film captures very, very well the trajectory of simultaneously some people are working towards the AA and some people are working towards the BA, and showing you how rigorous both of those programs are and how they relate to each other. And for me, I. So, first and foremost, I went through a lot of different changes in what my interests were. That's the beauty of a liberal arts education. typical of most college students, I would say, right? Right. The beauty of a liberal arts education is because, you know, I took sociology, I took math, I took science, I took uh, literature, I took history. And first I wanted to be a sociologist. It was like, oh, I really want to, you know, I took my first intro to social class. I want to do this. And then I took literature. I think I want a major in literature, right? (laughs) This does sound like a classic undergrad. Absolutely. And and uh, just
2: to say, I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about the program is that... It is exactly the same as what happens on liberal arts college campuses. Mm-hmm. just happens to be happening inside the prison. And that's just proven in everything Sally is saying.
3: Absolutely. So I, I didn't want to just say what I what I want to study. And I want, I want you to get the feel for what this journey was like for me. It wasn't like I, I went to school. I'm going to school for this. It was like I want to discover what my interests are. And those interests were constantly evolving over time. And then I had the, the pleasure of taking a, a – which, which really, in essence, was a critical theory class. Mm-hmm. You know, critical theory is very discursive in a sense that it is – it's, the, it's a space where you don't think of things in one discourse, right? It's trying to, like, merge and have different lenses and look at things at one time. And I, I wound up majoring in, in language and literature with a focus in German. And my senior thesis was uh, highly discursive. It was uh, a, theory ethics, a theory and ethics of and speech above and beyond communication, which was a look at how language does things to and with us. And it basically explored all the different aspects of how we think about language. So it was from an anthropolog- anthropological perspective, a philo- philosophical perspective, and then a kind of like hardcore, really linguistic uh Lingu- linguistics perspective, you know, just the, the, the idea of enunciation. This is as some opposed, really yeah.
2: serious stuff here. I yes, w- I remember they have these wonderful graduations every two years in the facilities, and there's a beautiful printed program, and it lists the topics of all the BA projects for that year. And I remember going to my first graduation right before I started teaching in the program, and I opened up the program, and it just completely blew my mind of what the topics were mm-hmm. and how sophisticated they were. And the level of rigor and discourse, as Sully is saying, was impressive. And I've read many of the projects, and you know, it's one thing to read the title and then to actually read the text. Um, The writing level is extremely high.
0: So uh, Sully mentioned studying German, and really, one of the emotional centers of the film is a German studies major named Jewel Hall. And Lynn, you interviewed him before his first parole hearing. Let's listen.
1: We get caught up in this notion of ourselves as a prisoner, as this contained identity that sees the world as if it's against us and when really we are, we have done things to make the world uh, go against us and we need to recognize that. By opening my mind in the classroom, I was able to get a better sense of that.
0: Lynn, hearing Jewel talk about how he sort of identified with Germany because Germany as a nation had done this this terrible thing and had to find a way to move past that. And then he had that same feeling about himself. I mean, I was just in tears during
2: that part. Did you know right away that he was going to be sort of at the story center? You know, Sarah and I really didn't know who would be the, the people that we would focus on at the beginning. Um, but we did know that we wanted to get to know students that were starting the AA, starting the BA, men and women in different facilities, and we wanted to find someone who would finish the program and was hopefully going to be going home, because we really wanted the film to show what it's like to come back to the world, free world, as they say, having this degree. And we met Jewel, I met Jewel uh, six months before we started shooting, um, and spoke to him about maybe would he participate in the progr- in the film or not, and he agreed. Mm-hmm. So we weren't sure, and we did first of all, we didn't know what happened to him, and you never really know... In a film like this, how things are going to turn out on many levels, Jules was extremely generous and um, open and vulnerable and honest with us about his life experience, and his hopes and future hopes and dreams for the future, and his feelings about the past. And as you heard in the clip, you know just how his academic experience was so essential to all of that. So some of the most moving aspects of the film, I would say, for all of us involved, Julie that is a spoiler but he did eventually get parole and he let us film him the day he walked out of prison after 22 years that must have been so and emotional it was i mean completely overwhelming in every way
4: yeah
2: and solely hearing him talk about how his
0: education sort of has changed his perspective what did you see as as you began to learn so much and learn this really tough stuff did that kind of change the way you'd thought about yourself and and your place in the world
3: i, I mean i can give a very specific example i mean i'm i'm pretty much an open book uh you know, I was I was incarcerated for a violent crime, and for most of my life before I was incarcerated, I sold drugs. And the way I used to frame it is a very bad way of framing things. Well, I only sell drugs. I don't. It's like I, I hurt people. And then I got in a situation where someone was hurt. And, you know, when I was arrested, the first thing, I mean, the first thing you think when arrested is I wish I wouldn't have got caught and I wish I wouldn't have did this. It wasn't for me at the deep level of really thinking about through what I did and the implications behind what I did. And then as time goes by, I start saying, yo, I got to figure out how I get in a position to never do this again. And that's what the whole interest in college and all these other things are. But then when I got into college, it was like, let me take a deeper look at, you know, what type of thinking I had, the type of behaviors I had, and the real implications behind what I did. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered was, for, for me, I didn't stop at the the fact of, you know, I committed this violent crime. It started to dawn on me, and this is a very, I mean, again, I'm, I'm being open book here. It was the moment where I, I, I discovered through just having the tools to really assess and analyze my life, that it hit me one day like, yo, there are like 30-year-old kids, p- people who hate their parents mm-hmm. because when I was selling drugs, their parents was using that drug money to do stuff like that money to buy drugs instead of buying Christmas gifts or—so mm-hmm. that level of—
0: You started realizing the gravity yeah, of, right? of what drugs can do.
3: And and just, you know, how my my actions—I right? I did a critical analysis of, you know, what, so what happens when I was doing what I was doing? Not just that I got caught on the surface, well, you know, it's a bad thing. Like, you know, what did it mean for me to really be a drug dealer? Mm-hmm. And the tools I got to be able to do that, those critical thinking skills, came from struggling through texts about Hegel and struggling, you know, looking at surface, never taking an idea on the surface, but like really digging into like what, what, what is holding this idea up, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, and I think that's what, you know, I've talked, me and Jewel are we're actually part of a lot of classes together. We've had a lot of discussions. And... I think that that experience that we have in doing that work in the classroom translates into the type of experience we have on reflecting back on where we come from and where we're trying to go Mm -hmm. and the kind of, you know, underlying behavior patterns and thought processes that allowed us to do some of the things we did and the things that we didn't acknowledge we were doing what we did. Mm-hmm.
0: We're talking to Soli Israel. He's a graduate of the Bard Prison Initiative. And we're here with Lynn Novak, a documentary filmmaker whose new film, College Behind Bars, will be on the Nine Network on November 25th. We need to take a quick break. We'll return to our conversation when we get back. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We're talking today to Lynn Novick about her new documentary. It's called College Behind Bars, and it goes in-depth on the Bard Prison Initiative, which gives a full liberal arts education to those in the New York state prison system. And we're also joined by Soli Israel, who is a graduate of the program. And finally, for the second half of our conversation here today, we're joined by Paul Lynch. He's the director of the prison program at St. Louis University, which offers college courses to those in the Missouri Department of Corrections. Uh, Paul Lynch, thank you so much. for joining us Thank today. Thank you for having me. Uh, if you have a question or comment for our guests, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So Paul Lynch, when did St. Louis University decide to get into this line of work?
5: In 2007, and it actually started because of the Bard Prison Initiative. Uh, our founding director was watching 60 Minutes one night and saw a uh, segment on the Bard Prison Initiative and thought, We're a Catholic Jesuit university. Why don't we have something like this? Why aren't we involved in this work? And that started some conversations and reaching out to the Missouri Department of Corrections. And 12 years later, we're we're doing programming there and in a federal institution in Illinois. So it's grown quite a lot in the last decade or so.
0: So I understand in addition to being the director of the program, you've also been an instructor in it. Yes. And I'm just very curious. What is that experience like? How does that contrast with the students on the main campus at St. Louis University? It's...
5: um, Lynn and Sully have already, have already mentioned that it is intellectually intimidating as an instructor to walk in. It is, it is wonderful teaching. It's exhausting teaching because everyone's yeah. always done the reading, perhaps two or three times. Yeah. Everyone has drafted and redrafted their papers. And if, you, if you're not prepared, they, you uh, will be found out very quickly.
2: Lynn, you've uh, seen this when you were yeah, in there. Yes, yeah. exactly. You have to be uh, hyper-prepared. Yeah.
5: No one's on a cell phone. No mm. one's on Facebook, right? And they are, I wouldn't say hungry for learning. I'd say more ravenous for mm. learning. So they, it's, uh, its for a teacher, it's a dream. It's intimidating the first time to walk through the doors and the gates and the razor wire and all that. But once you're in the classroom, it's its a classroom. They're students, and they're really, really good students who I would put in any classroom. And say, and, you know. and
2: I would just say, you know, listening to Paul speak, and I've heard other professors say the same thing, that that does call into question all of our you know, most respected institutions of higher learning in this country, they claim that they have the best students Mm. and that they have, you know, you make the cut to go to XYZ name brand school and you're supposed to be one of the best and the brightest. But we've actually relegated some of the best and the brightest to our prisons and our institutions, I believe, have an obligation to go meet them where they are and... You know, take advantage of these brilliant students that are just basically being warehoused in most places.
0: And I want to briefly um, address a misconception that I had going into this film where I might have said, oh, yes, that's all well and good, but in prison you have nothing but time. The yeah. rest of us are distracted by life. So, Lee, I learned in this film there's some real challenges to trying to find time to, to study. Tell us just a little bit about that. Well, well first,
3: uh, you know, men and women in prison do not sit around all day doing nothing. Like that doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, men and women in prison are assigned things to do, and then there's a constant break of time all the time. Every prison has to do counts, like they have to ensure that people are where they're supposed to be at, and these happen throughout the day. So you can be somewhere you have to go back. To, you could be a college student inside the college. We don't at, when that when that time for the count comes, you stop doing what you're doing. You put everything down. You go back to the area where you are assigned to live or lock. And then you're counted. And then, then time that count takes sometimes hours to clear. Uh, and then when that count is clear, we start another rotation of this moving around thing. So it, it doesn't matter if you were in, say you stayed in the study, you got to get up and stand up and be counted. Mm-hmm. Like, and you have to be on, you have to be alert so that you don't miss that. And I think that the I you know and I understand where that comes from. We, we, we see a lot of you know, we've done a lot of disservice to what corrections do. Because so, you know, it, it implied that the corrections always just sit around all day and just do nothing while, while you know, the men and women in prison sit around and do nothing. So there, there are things happening in prisons that a lot of people are responsible for, correction staff, civilian staff, and then, you know, the, the, the incarcerated people themselves. And it's not this thing where we are just, you know, passing time.
0: And Lynn, you captured uh, the people in the BARD program studying till 2, 3 in the morning. I mean, this this ravenousness that Paul describes, it's not like this is coming out of boredom. This is coming out of a, a passion for what yeah. they're doing.
2: Yes, exactly. There's a tremendous sense of urgency, as Paul was saying. And uh, many students told us that it's very hard to find um, quiet. So there's there's constant noise, walkie squawking and just people yelling and just doors clanging and, it's, it, you know. So it's not like a quiet library setting, but at night in you know late at night, especially is when a lot of the students work, and many of them told us that they started drinking coffee in a serious way. Like I did also in college. <laughs> a lot of college students do their best work at two o'clock in the morning.
0: Um, and yet, at the same time, um, a lot of these students are coming from schools, uh, high schools and, and grade schools that I'm sure are a lot less prestigious than the typical Bard student or the typical student at St. Louis University. Paul, is there a lot of catching up they have to do in order to, to get into um, exercising those intellectual urges?
5: In my experience, no. Hmm. I would, I mean, the, the best students, we've already talked about it, but the best students in our class I would put in any classroom and the main campus of St. Louis or really any classroom in the country hmm. Uh, And there are students for whom it's more of a challenge, right? But the work ethic is so strong that the catch-up or the learning curve is very, very quick. And... and it's the the growth you see is is amazing. I taught the very first composition course for our current cohort of students. and the And the growth just in that one nine week course was astounding.
4: Hmm.
0: Now, Lynn, um we can see these these amazing impacts that this education is having. And at the same time, it was horrifying to hear that this used to be something where federal money routinely went into it. Uh, and now that's not the case. When did that change?
2: Yeah. so um, there were college programs in almost every prison in America for more than a generation. And that means there were about 800 programs. And not everyone who was incarcerated was taking advantage of them, but it was available. And it was part of the idea of what prison is for. And in 1994, as part of the Clinton Crime Bill, which has now become quite infamous for a whole variety of reasons, having to do with mass incarceration and injustice of our criminal justice system, one of the things that happened in addition to spending $10 billion to build more prisons and incentivize states to do that, they removed Pell Grant eligibility for people incarcerated. It was a tiny fraction of the budget and it was really about not about saving money but really about punishment Mm -hmm. and denying opportunity to people who really had not had it generally in our society, people of color. And so at the same time the prison population exploded, we removed one of the critical things that people need to be able to return to society. And, you know, 95% of people who are incarcerated will be coming home. So it really does, you know, raise a big question, what are we doing? So, in one of the most surprising
0: scenes in the film, um, the mother of one of the uh, one of the females who's in prison, she brings up sort of she's there to, to be the devil's advocate, and she argues that we shouldn't pay for prison, for shouldn't pay for college for those who are in prison. Um, and later, you interviewed her mother, so let's listen to what the mother said to you.
3: When you're in prison, you're supposed to be able to get reformed or rehabilitated. You would want to get the same education that we're in here getting. My frustration was new because I never really let it out. I don't know that this program is privately funded. Okay, all I know is that my daughter got a free diploma when I have to pay for my other kids to go to school. So for that, I might as well just go ahead and commit a crime, a, petty, a crime that um, might be forgiven with society. and Let me just do two years and go get me a degree. We just ain't gonna see
0: eye to eye ever. That's Sonia Graham. She's the mother of a woman who um, is in prison in New York State who was participating in the uh, Bard Prison Initiative. And that's the subject of Lynn Novick's new film. We're talking to Lynn today as as well as a graduate of the program. And then Paul Lynch, who um, runs the program at St. Louis University. Lynn, you must have been surprised to hear this coming out of her mouth.
2: You know, we weren't really surprised because we had spent some time with her and we knew that she was conflicted about this. Mm-hmm. And I think what you really hear is a lot of frustration with her daughter's situation and what the family has gone through. She, um, the mother, Tamika's mom, had to raise her daughter while she was incarcerated. And it's a very, very difficult situation. But also, she does express what a lot of people feel. College is too expensive. Mm-hmm. Which is There's, a very real issue. Which is a very real issue. And so, um, you know, what I can say is that Tamika and her mom, Tamika would say her mom is her greatest supporter, was there for her the entire time she was incarcerated. And that her thinking is beginning to evolve now that she's seen the film, hmm. which is really interesting to us. But, you know, we wanted her view in the film because we wanted to represent that many people feel this way, but also to sort of explain why this way of thinking is um, really not reflective of reality. And I think Sully is gonna say something.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, two things. One is this idea that uh, that this this question really isn't framed as the cost of college.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: When it's really what's at stake is the cost of college. So most people, when they say, you know, you shouldn't get a free education, that's not really what's at stake here. What's at stake is, why did I have to pay so much and you're paying so little? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, this is not this is not the case just to many women in prison. People feel like that about many people who qualify for an entitlement that's called Pell. But mm-hmm. well, why are you getting Pell when I got to pay, right? And I think that the, the question of taxes and how entitlements uh, play into the way tax dollars are used, because Pell is an entitlement. It's not. There's a qualification level there that if you meet it, you get it, whether you're in prison or not in prison. Mm-hmm. And I mean, once they reinstate it, which we, the real act, hopefully, you know, is probably going to get passed, and which, which could be very helpful. And But the reality is that even if I was in prison, I had $100,000 on my account, I wouldn't qualify for Pell. Pell is what Pell is, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not a zero-sum game. When I get Pell, I didn't take it from anyone that was going to get Pell. And I think the common misconception is we think about Pell in that way, that if you gave it to this person, then I wasn't going to get it. The reality is that even if I gave it to someone that was you know not incarcerated, if you don't qualify, you still have to pay what you paid.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think you know if we telescope out a little bit more to the big picture— um, there's been many studies that have shown that when you spend money on education for people who are incarcerated, it saves an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. So this wasn't actually about saving money because for every dollar you spend on education, you save $5 because people don't go back to prison. The Bard Prison Initiative has had 600 graduates come home and 4% have gone back to prison compared to 60%.
0: That's an amazing statistic. And, Paul, I understand your program has had some really good numbers as well on the recidivism front.
5: Yes. we. I mean, it's it, – We've had 13 uh, graduates of the program be released from incarceration and none is returned, right, which kind of tracks with national That's trends. a great number. Yeah, yeah, it is a great number, yeah.
0: Now, in in preparation for this conversation, um, one of our producers spoke to Barbara, Barbara Baumgartner, and she's the associate director of Washington University's prison education program. They launched it uh, just in 2014, but they are really escalating. And she shared her thoughts about where things stand today when it comes to prison education programs
4: across the U.S. Here's what she told us. I am really hopeful that, for instance, uh, the Bard film, or the film of Bobbard, uh, might really help um, get more awareness uh, to the importance of prison education and the effectiveness of it. Um, and I think the Department of uh, Corrections in Missouri, for example, is really gotten much more interested and invested in education. And um, they, they offer, in addition to um, St. Louis University, Washington University, and Rockhurst uh, over in the Kansas City area, um all, all, all offering in-person education. They're also uh, uh, allowing uh, the incarcerated individuals in Missouri to take uh, online courses from Ashland University, which is an online, um, you know, uh, education with with, with with some in-person contact. Uh, I, I personally prefer, um, uh, you know, education that happens with a professor in a classroom. However. The online education still has uh, a lot of advantage. you know it's it's certainly better than what was here before, which was not a lot. So I'm really encouraged to see the direction that the Missouri Department of Education is going into, and they've been very, very supportive of our program and the food program as well.
0: That's Barbara Baumgartner, who runs Washington University's Prison Education Program. Um, Lynn Novak, real quick before we get to the bigger picture, uh, what's the problem with these online education programs? It seems like they just couldn't possibly be as effective as as what you observed.
2: I think that what happens in the process of getting an education is not just absorbing material like Sally was saying, it's interacting with human beings in a socially, you know, we are social animals. Mm-hmm. Hearing your uh, your classmates' ideas and thinking, thinking your own, having to say your words out loud and express yourself, wait your turn, um, dealing with the professor, having assignments due, I mean, there's so many things that happen on a meta level, metacognition, that are what education actually is. I don't remember most of the things I learned in college, but I grew as a person, as a thinker, from all those kinds of interactions. And, you know, it's a very concentrated thing. You go into class with other human beings. You sit, around, you sit together and you discuss, which is what Salih was talking about, and I think that's essential. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I would, I would I'd have to add to that. We have to be very careful about this, anything is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. There, there are public high schools and public schools in this country that are failing our children, but it's something. Do, we don't want to replicate that, right? Yeah. And, I mean, as a queer correlation, we call it the school-to-prison pipeline. Because we know that some schools, although they're schools, don't serve students' needs like they should be served. Mm-hmm. So we can have some colleges, some college programs that although they're colleges, they can not serve the needs. So this idea of as long as there's something, that's the approach we've taken with much of our public schools already.
5: hmm
0: so yeah, why is that? Why is that something we then want to replicate? Um, Paul Lynch, Barbara Baumgarter also talked about the fact the Missouri Department of Corrections is becoming more open to this. Are, are you seeing that? That they're, they've been a good partner in working with this? Yes. Okay. Yes, I
5: think so. I mean, I think they see the benefit um, of, of education, not only for we talk a lot about recidivism, but it also just changes changes the trajectory I think for incarcerated students, even while they remain incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Um, so i th- I think they see uh, see this as something that is is helpful, and yeah the uh, the folks we work with at the Terre facility where our program is have been great to work with
0: okay Lynn Novak, so just in our our final minute here um, this you're tackling such an important issue. What would you like to see come out of of this um, as it has its its premiere coming up?
2: Well, first, we just want people to watch it. It's coming on the Monday and Tuesday before Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and you know um. We're living in very complicated times, very polarizing times, and sometimes we just kind of tune out, at least I do, because the news is really intense and hard to take, and I think this is a very, you know, as much as it's about some very complicated issues, it is an inspiring story that has a lot about resilience and determination and overcoming, and those are really important um, aspects of our life that we need to focus on, and so we're really hoping that everyone in America will watch this film and talk about it at Thanksgiving, and you know, if they do watch, when people do watch, I think they will have some of the experiences Sarah and I had making the film, which is, you know, getting to know the students has sort of rearranged our molecules and thinking about what people who are incarcerated, who they are, and what they're capable of. Lynn Novak, the
0: director of College Behind Bars, um, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: And Salih Israel and Paul Lynch, thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And you can catch that film again. That's on the Nine Network, November 25th and 26th. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.